Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me today to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Let's read together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we are in the midst of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which is made up of two major movements, the gospel proclamation and then the gospel application. Said another way, Ephesians outlines both our position and our practice in Christ, who we are in him, and then how we are called to live our lives as a result of this. Throughout chapter one, Paul has turned the gaze of our hearts toward Christ, and it's by him alone that we understand who we are as faithful saints in Christ Jesus. As we now turn to Ephesians chapter 2, the gospel proclamation collides with the story of humanity, and it does so in two ways. Firstly, it radically redefines how we relate to God, And then secondly, it radically redefines how we relate to one another. This week, we're going to look at how Jesus radically redefines our relationship to God the Father. We're going to walk through three important biblical realities. Firstly, that we are the walking dead. Secondly, God's gracious intervention And finally, this joyful reality that we are alive in Christ. So join me as we consider this first biblical reality, the walking dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 reads, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. 
Welcome to Mother's Day Sunday. I pray and trust that these words really bless you this morning. Friends, as Daryl Johnson tells us, the good news of Jesus Christ is so good precisely because the bad news is so very bad. Paul writes at the beginning of chapter 2 in Ephesians, you were dead. No one really likes to speak about death, particularly over the weekend and especially on special weekends like this one. But clearly no one told this to Paul. This being said, death is something that we will all inevitably face if we haven't faced it already. We know that nothing is more final than death. There is nothing that we can do to bring back a loved one that we may have lost or who has died. A few months ago, my four-year-old son, Caleb, quite dramatically began to realize this. Late one night, I was with both of my boys in their bedroom. And after we had prayed, they began talking to me about my mom, who died nearly 15 years ago. Judah, our oldest son, absolutely loves history and he finds personal joy in understanding who he is and what he has come from, our shared family story. And he'll often find great comfort in asking questions about his granny. This really seems to give him a sense of who he is. It gives him stories to understand where he comes from. However, on this particular night, these questions provided no comfort to Caleb whatsoever. Needless to say, I spent a good 30 minutes trying to console Caleb, who was upset that his granny had died and visibly enraged. And he was enraged because there was nothing that he could do, no matter how loudly he cried or protested, to bring her back. I tried and tried to explain this again and again. My boy, we love Granny, but she's with Jesus. There's nothing we can do, but we will see her one day. He was having none of it. And yes, on one hand, it was very sad. But the longer he persisted in his rage, the more comically sobering this experience became. My son resolved to bring his granny back by sheer force and willpower. And the rest of the family was totally helpless in the reality and in the finality of her death. Nothing is more final and nothing is more helpless than death. We know this painfully so in our grief. Paul writes to remind the church in Ephesus that this is exactly what we are apart from God. You were dead, he writes. From the very first pages of scripture, Genesis teaches us that we were created by God in his image for good works, in partnership with him. However, we know according to the scriptures that things have gone horribly wrong. Humanity made and then continues to make the choice to go it alone and to live without the living God. As a result of our rebellion and as a result of our sin, we begin to die. Not always in ways that are obvious, 
but in ways that are finally catastrophic. When a flower is clipped from its roots, it begins to die. When our phones are unplugged from a power source, they begin to die. When San Diegans are removed from the sun, they begin to die. Apart from the living God, we are dead. Sin, we read, is to miss the mark, which Paul says that all of us have done. At one point or another, we also choose to go it alone, and we live without the living God. As a result, you and I trespass, we sin, we transgress, we ignore a clear boundary. Paul tells us, and if we're honest, our own stories confirm that indeed we have all done this. And ultimately, it results in our death. You see, scripture argues that there is more than one way to be alive, and there is more than one way for us to be dead. Our physical bodies can be alive for a while, but we can be spiritually dead, which is the only sphere of life that ultimately matters. Disconnected from the living God, we are dead in relationship with the author of life. Disconnected from the living God, we are the walking dead. And try as we might on our own, we are not alive in the ways that ultimately matter. You were dead, Paul writes. We were dead, all of us. We might have healthy bodies, engaged minds, and enigmatic personalities, but at the core of who we are, apart from the living God, we are dead, unresponsive to God. We might go and pioneer in our workplace, purchase organic produce and cultivate connection with the people around us, but at the core of who we are, apart from the living God, we are dead, unresponsive to God. Paul continues to explain that the walking dead follow and live under the power of three key influences. He tells us that they are the world, the devil, and the flesh. I want to say a brief word on each one of these three influences. Firstly, the world. This word, cosmos, in the New Testament, doesn't refer to the physical universe or creation, but rather it is a shorthand for the world rejecting the presence, the rule, and the lordship of God. It is, as one theologian argues, human society organizing itself without God. So according to Paul, we walked according to the flow of human society organizing itself apart from and without God. Daryl Johnson says that we took our cues on how to live from it. We let our sense of identity and worth be determined by it. We let our careers and our livelihoods be determined by it. We let our understanding of how communities and cities and nations work be shaped by it. And we let our understanding of sexuality and marriage and family be formed by it. He writes that our values are set by a godless way of life, shaped by a godless vision of reality. Or, as Eugene Peterson would phrase it, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, 
we let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell us how to live. The world, human society organizing itself apart from God. Secondly, the devil. The bad news continues to be really bad. Paul explains that in our sin, we unknowingly or knowingly cooperate with powers that are in direct opposition to God, who is the giver of life. Now, I understand that in a Western context, this might seem ludicrous, or even, if we're honest, offensive to say. But according to scripture, we will never completely understand life unless we take this reality into consideration. I've had the privilege of being formed in an African context where in my nation, like many nations across the earth, the question is not, are there spiritual powers at work in the world? But rather, what is my response to the spiritual powers that are at work in the world? The American biblical scholar Walter Wink writes that spiritual powers are everywhere around us. Their presence is real and inescapable. And while it is a virtue to, be, to disbelieve in something that does not exist, it is dangerous and even arrogant to disbelieve in something simply because it exists outside of our current limited categories. This biblical worldview lovingly gives us the lens through which we may see any form of injustice or human oppression, tyranny, transgression, and sin. It gives us a lens to, to fully understand things like human trafficking, racial injustice, violence and abuse, the chokehold of consumer, consumerism, or any falsehood that promises we can bring ourselves back to life. The goal of God's enemy is, is the great end of disbelief. Disbelief in the God who loves us. Failure to believe that we can trust the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. For once we do not trust, we are more likely to disobey, just like our forefathers, Adam and Eve. Finally, the flesh. Most often in the scriptures, the flesh is human nature trying to live apart from God, defined by one theologian as human nature that has turned in on itself, away from the creator. So it is humanity with self at the center of all things. It is the poem Invictus, written by William Ernest Henley, which proclaims, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Self-driven, self-oriented, self-grounded, and we have all lived it. Apart from Jesus Christ, Paul says that we are dead in our sin, dead in rebellion, captured, mastered, and enslaved by the world, the devil, and the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 in the message translation says, It wasn't so long ago that you were murdered in that old, stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. 
You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder that God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. So, where does that put us? Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. This is what Romans chapter 3 verse 9 tells us. So the bad news is really, really bad. Thankfully, this brings me to the second point of the message today. Chapter 2 verses 4 to 7, God's gracious intervention. It says this, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. But God, but God, this little phrase, Daryl Johnson writes, is the gospel in its simplest form. It could be the title for the whole Bible, stamped on the cover from the beginning of the great story, all through the middle and at the end. But God, it is a stunning crossroads for humanity. We were dead, but God. We were dead in our trespasses, but God. We were dead in our sin, but God. We were captured, mastered, and enslaved by the world, the devil, and the flesh, but God. The sting of death makes this good news truly so very good. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that collides with the story of humanity. While we were dead in our sin, while we had nothing to offer him, God enters into human history to rescue us and radically redefines how we relate to the Father. So if justice is God giving us exactly what we deserve, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, and grace is God giving us exactly what we do not deserve. If God's enemy would declare over our lives, but your sin, Jesus declares, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, saves you by grace. And this grace is the inexhaustible kindness of God. It is the inexhaustible goodness of God who loves us. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not God makes naughty people good. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not God helps bad people clean up their act, pull up their socks and turn over a new leaf. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God raises dead people to life. Like anyone who is dying, 
our propensity is to look for life-saving measures wherever we can, ourselves, others, systems, practices, structures. We look for life-saving measures. But the truth is that the dead cannot resurrect the dead. Resurrection power is reserved only for the living God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 does not read, but Caitlin. It also does not read, but South Africa. It does not read, but we went west, whether that was geographically or in the disposition of our hearts. Nor does chapter 2 verse 4 read, but my education, but my medical care, but my financial situation. It reads, but God. God is the one who does a new thing in the world through Jesus Christ when we were dead because he is rich in mercy to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So what is the new thing that he has done? God has made us alive. He has raised us up and he has seated us in the heavens with Jesus Christ. So let's quickly turn back in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. Paul prays that we would know the surpassing greatness of God's power, which he exercised in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul wants us to see that what God has done for Jesus, he now does for all who believe in him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was dead, but God, but God raised him to life. He seated him in the heavens. What a display of God's power. We were dead, but God. But God has made us alive in Christ. He has raised us up and he has seated us with him in the heavens. What a display of God's grace. So what is true of Jesus Christ is now also true of you and me. In the person of Jesus, the gospel proclamation collides with human history. In him, the grip of sin and death is ultimately broken. In him, everything is transferred from one reality to a totally new reality. In him, we are taken from death into life. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that God has now put everything under Jesus' feet. New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln sums it up for us. Christ's death was a death to the old order, to the powers of this age, including sin, and his resurrection was a coming alive to a new order in which he functioned as Lord with the power of God. Christ's death and resurrection changed the power structures of history. If but God is the gospel in two words, here is the gospel in three verbs made alive, raised up, seated. In him, in Jesus Christ, we are made alive, we are raised up, and we are seated. 
God makes us alive in the life of Christ, who is himself alive. We are raised up into a new, indestructible world order in which sin and the grave cannot destroy us. And lastly, Christ is on the throne, and so are all who belong to him. And we are invited finally to live and do what we have always been created for, good works in partnership with our servant King Jesus. Made alive, raised up, seated, because he is rich in mercy and displaying the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This brings me to my last and final point today, which is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. We are alive in Christ. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Brian's sister, my sister-in-law, Jenna, is a ballerina. And I will never forget what the examiner wrote about her final contemporary ballet exam. She said, watching Jenna dance was like watching poetry in motion. The actual word that Paul uses for workmanship is poema, which we use to derive the English word poem. This word was used to describe the handiwork of all kinds, but with a particular emphasis on rhythm, orderliness, and beauty. So we, who were once dead in our trespasses and sin, are now God's poetry, his handiwork created in Christ Jesus. The word poema is only used twice in the New Testament. The first time that Paul uses it is in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He writes, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Scholars tell us that the phrase, what he has made, is a translation of the word poema. What we learn then is at the creation of the world, God wrote a poem by which he has revealed himself. The second time that poema is used is here in Ephesians when Paul tells us that we are God's poema. Daryl Johnson writes, the world and we were his first work expressing rhythm, orderliness, and beauty. God's first poem, The Creation of the World, got ruined, a fact which everyone on this planet is painfully aware. So, God wrote a new poem, and he made a new creation. God made us, people, alive in Jesus Christ. We are his new work, expressing rhythm, orderliness, and beauty. We have become poetry in motion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. 
This is what it means to be saved by the immeasurable riches of God's grace. In Christ, we are saved from slavery to sin, the sting of death, the powers of evil and the wrath of God. And in Christ, we are now saved for life with him, raised up, seated, living as new creations. This is why Paul urges us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 and through the remainder of this letter to the church in Ephesus, therefore walk worthy of the calling which you have received. Do not walk as the dead, but walk as those who are alive in Christ Jesus. In him we are an emblem of God's grace. In him, we are enlivened, we are animated and empowered for the good works of God's kingdom, which he has prepared for us beforehand to walk in. So God's grace puts us to work. Matthew eleven twenty nine says, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Poetry emotion, rhythm, orderliness and beauty. This is Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. In his painting is Christ. With his right hand, Jesus blesses, and in his left hand, he holds the cosmos. Christ, the savior of the world. In 2017, it was sold for $450.3 million, making it the most expensive piece of art ever sold. Christ, the savior of the world, blessing and holding the cosmos. The most expensive piece of art ever sold, except for you. The poema, the handiwork, the workmanship of God, purchased with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You were dead, but God, in the immeasurable riches of his grace, you are a new creation, alive, raised up, seated. And as Paul tells us in Acts chapter 1 verse 28, it is in him that you live and move and now have your being. Isn't that amazing? In Jesus Christ, we are raised up, we are alive and we are seated. We were once the walking dead, but God graciously intervened and now we are alive with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you for the reminder today that apart from Jesus, we are the walking dead dead in our sin and trespasses, walking according to the way of the world under the influence of Satan and the flesh. But God, you did not leave us there because in your love and in the immeasurable riches of your grace, you have stretched your hand toward us and you have made us alive in Christ Jesus. Whether it is for the first time or if it's something we're doing again, God, we receive the gift of your grace today. And finally, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would walk as those who are alive, raised up and seated in the heavens with our servant King, Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.